Hello, my name is Daniel Lev Shkolnik, and this is Reenchantment, a podcast about finding wonder in a secular age. My faith lies in humanity, not the supernatural. And if you believe that spirituality is fundamentally about cultivating the human spirit, then this podcast is for you. I love Gnosticism. I've loved it ever since I first read about it several years ago. It's something that most people don't know much about, and until relatively recently, historians didn't know much either. There's still ongoing debate about Gnosticism. Was it a unified religion? Was it an attitude towards uh, any given religion? Was its mythology intended to be literal or just allegorical? And I'm not expert enough on the subject to get into the nitty-gritty of those debates, but I do want to give an introduction to why I think Gnosticism is amazing and amazingly relevant as an allegory for the human and the religious condition that we find ourselves in today. A quick note on quotation. I quote from various online sources here, and primarily the New World Encyclopedia, the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy, and good old Wikipedia. Uh, and I try to note when and where I'm switching between uh, my own words and quotations, but I recognize that sometimes it isn't exactly clear in the recording, so apologies ahead of time if sometimes I quote without proper attribution. And now, without further ado, here's my ever-so-brief introduction to Gnosticism. In December of 1945, as the world tried to put out the final fires of the most devastating war in history, two Egyptian brothers found some papyrus scrolls in a large jug out in the desert. They had been digging for fertilizer around some limestone caves near Nag Hammadi, but instead of fertilizer, they discovered one of the most important archaeological finds of the century, the Nag Hammadi Library. They brought the papyrus home, and the brothers realized that they might be able to make some money from the manuscripts by selling them individually. Their mother, though, apparently started to burn several of the manuscripts, worried that the papers might have dangerous or perhaps somehow magical effects. According to the New World Encyclopedia, in 1946, the brothers left the manuscripts with a Coptic priest, whose brother-in-law sold one of the codices to the Coptic Museum in Old Cairo. The residential Coptologist and religious historian Jean Dorisset realized the significance of the artifact and published the first reference to it in 1948. After this, the codices underwent a complex string of exchanges, passing of hands between priests, antiquarians, museums, political regimes. One of the codices was actually acquired by the Carl Jung Institute in Zurich in 1951 and was given to the famed psychologist as a birthday gift. Carl Jung was a big fan of the Gnostics and would use many of their motifs in his own work. But for several decades, the remaining manuscripts remained largely untranslated until their value was finally recognized and translations began to emerge. The Nag Hammadi Library was recognized for what it was, a historical miracle. It was a treasure trove of Gnostic writings historians have believed were lost and destroyed by the early Christian church. 
Gnosticism comes from gnosis. It's the Greek word for knowledge or insight. And according to the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy, it's the name given to a loosely organized religious and philosophical movement that flourished in the 1st and 2nd century CE, Gnosticism. We don't know the exact origins of Gnosticism, but it's fairly clear that it was influenced by the writings of Plato, Hermes Trismegistus, the Hebrew scriptures, and also some of the Jewish apocalyptic writings. Quoting again from the New World Encyclopedia, prior to the discovery of the Nag Hammadi Library, relatively few Gnostic works had survived. Many were in fragmentary form. Nag Hammadi produced an unprecedented trove of Gnostic volumes, many of them in relatively good condition. Sitting in that cave for almost 2,000 years, the library consisted of 11 books and nearly 1,000 pages of previously unknown spiritual writings regarding Gnosticism and early Christianity, writings about the divine feminine, a number of unknown apocalypses such as the Apocalypse of Adam, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Apocalypse of James, the second Apocalypse of James, along with verses purportedly uttered by Jesus but not found anywhere in the New Testament. One of these verses, I really love this, it's so esoteric. It reads, When you make the two one, and you make the inside as the outside, and the outside as the inside, and the above as the below, and if you establish the male with the female as a single unity, so that the man will not be masculine and the woman not be feminine, When you establish an eye in the place of an eye, and a hand in the place of a hand, and a foot in the place of a foot, and an image in the place of an image, then shall you enter the kingdom. Gnosticism had some of the same characteristics as regular Abrahamic religions. They had the Jewish Yahweh, Jesus, the Apostles, but how the Gnostics interpreted the Abrahamic story was very different from the narrative that came to dominate Christianity and which most of us are familiar with today. Gnosticism critiqued Christianity and and Judaism and the whole Abrahamic system in that it criticized the naive belief in a human-like personal God, one that cared about human concerns and could be spoken with, known, and related to. The critique was a threat to the early Christian church and they suppressed Gnosticism destroying much of its writings and exposing its teachings. In the 20th century, there was a renewed interest in Gnosticism. Key intellectuals in the Gnostic revival included Hans Jonas, the existential philosopher and student of Martin Heidegger, as well as the psychologist Carl Jung, who drew heavily on Gnostic motifs and regarded the Gnostics as the virtual discoverers of depth psychology, He believed that the Gnostic worldview prefigured his Jungian spiritual therapy. In many ways, the myth of Gnosticism still holds today, not only in its critique of the Abrahamic religions, but also as a psychological and philosophical outlook on the self and on the world. And because some modern scholars believe that Gnostic writings to be primarily metaphorical, the mythos that they embody and that they describe can be read as a naturalistic and allegorical form of mythology and not as a literal cosmology. 
Now, one of the most exciting things that I find about Gnosticism is its origin myth, the way in which it describes how the world comes into being. Before we dive into that story, though, uh, I want to introduce some important uh, words and concepts and characters that take center stage in the Gnostic myth. The monad, aka the one, the source, the absolute, that is the true god of the Gnostic system. It is an abstract totality of creation uh, and is very similar to Ein Sof of the, Kabbal- of the Kabbalists. Basically, infinite, it is the god that pervades all things, everything is within it, and it has no distinct agency or consciousness. It is not a, a being, it is simply being itself. The pleroma is the central sphere of the divine. It translates to fullness and refers to the totality of God's powers and the realm of the divine. Another important set of characters are the aeons, which are divine beings created through a process of emanation from the divine, where basically the divine monad emanates a certain light and that light can be seen as kind of a cascading through a series of stages becoming less and less divine more and more material and the last of the aeons the one furthest away from uh, the true god is sophia wisdom and this is where the gnostic myth begins now sophia wisdom She wanted to know, as wisdom often does, more than she did. She wanted to know, in particular, the true God. She knew about the true God, but she didn't know what it was or who it was or or much about it. She tried to imitate the act of creation of emanation that created the pleroma and all the aeons in herself, and... In this act of attempted imitation of creation, she created something that she didn't intend to. She gave birth to the Demiurge. And ashamed of what she had done, she wrapped the Demiurge in a cloud and created a throne for him within it. And the Demiurge, isolated, apart from the Pleroma, didn't see his mother, didn't see any of the aeons, didn't see anything else, and concluded that he was the only thing that existed. And the Demiurge, whose name means artisan or creator, sets about the work of creation, believing that there's nothing else in existence. He goes about creating in an unconscious imitation of the superior He goes ahead and he decides to create the world. He creates the material world, and he does so in imitation of himself, with all his egoism and flaws. And thus, Sophia's power, his mother's power, which she received from the true God, becomes also enclosed within the material world of humanity. The sparks of the divine inspiration and power become entrapped in the material universe, particularly in the souls of every human being. In fact, that is the thing that gives us life.
the goal of the Gnostics was typically the awakening of this spark, which permitted a return of the subject to the superior non-material reality where we all originate from. And if you know anything about the Jewish mystical tradition of Kabbalah, there is a very similar sort of design at play. The Ein Sof, the infinite, unknown, and impersonal God, emanates through a series of stages, the Sefirot, down to the material world. And through some initial catastrophe, the breaking of the vessels of reality, uh, the sparks of the divine become entrapped in the material, possibly evil, world. Uh, and the Kabbalists have to also find these sparks and lift them up, returning them to the divine realm. And in fact, there's been a lot of scholarly research and discussion about how Kabbalah and Gnosticism are related and possibly influenced one another. Now, why I think Gnosticism is so cool Gnosticism is an early critique of the naive personification of ultimate reality. The notion that the true God of Gnosticism is not a human-like being as portrayed in Abrahamic religions, but it's an overarching reality, a oneness, a totality, an absolute. That's a much more authentic an honest interpretation of God, if you ask me. It's something that is akin to looking at all of reality, all of being, and saying, yeah, this is where we come from, and this is where we're going to go. We arise from this realm, and when we die, we return to it. And early on, the Christian church was threatened by this critique. In the Apocryphon of John, one of the Gnostic texts found in the Nag Hammadi library, uh, the, the Demiurge arrogantly declares that he has made the world by himself. He said, I am God and there is no other God beside me, for he is ignorant of his strength, the place from which he had come. Here, the Demiurge is meant to represent the Old Testament God, the God of Judaism, and also the God that becomes absorbed into Christianity. The Gnostics write that as a ray of light from above entered the body of man and gave him a soul, the Demiurge was filled with envy, and he tried to limit man's knowledge by forbidding him the fruit of knowledge in paradise. So you could see here that the Gnostics are taking the myths of the Bible, and in many cases, the very words of God in the Bible, and they're saying that this is an evil God. This is not a good God. This is a God that restricts knowledge. This is a God that is envious. This is a God that wants no other gods before himself, a jealous God. It's a direct criticism of the monotheistic Old Testament God. And not only that, but taken as a metaphor, which Carl Jung and later Jungians did, the myth of the Demiurge 
becomes a kind of representation of the human inner world. Stephen Holler writes that the blind and arrogant creator demiurge bears a close resemblance to the alienated human ego that has lost contact with the ontological self. And also the myth of Sophia resembles closely the story of the human psyche that loses its connection with the collective unconscious and needs to be rescued by the self. Many esoteric teachings, he writes, have proclaimed as above, so below. In our psychological nature, the microcosm mirrors metaphysical nature, the macrocosm. Thus, Gnosticism may possess both a psychological and a religious authenticity. Personally, I think that the Gnostic myth isn't just a fascinating relic of religious history. I think it's one of the few religious myths that I think remains vital and alive and in fact, matches the circumstances of our age. The early Gnostics were disillusioned with the naive monotheism of the Abrahamic faiths. We also find ourselves in a similar position. The Yahweh, Jehovah, Allah of the Abrahamic faiths are demiurges. Their religious texts, as well as their fundamentalist and zealous followers, take on the same egoism of their gods. The Gnostic critique is still relevant today. And we can see the gods of the old religions as these kinds of false gods. These gods wrapped up in their own egoism, wrapped up in the sense that they are the only things that exist and are cut off from the wide pleroma of other aeons, other myths, other ways of interpreting ultimate reality. In that way, the Gnostic critique is relevant in the 21st century, just as it was in the 1st century. And although the Gnostics' texts sat wrapped in scrolls for 2,000 years in a desert cave, there's something about them that feels strangely modern to me. In the next episode, I want to talk about how this old myth might be updated and interpreted to put into practice by those seeking an authentic form of spirituality that at once critiques naive theism and also offers an alternative cosmic drama, one in which we each take responsibility for the co-creation and even perhaps the salvation of the world in imitating the Demiurge's creative act of Genesis, we have a chance to become godlike ourselves. But I want to talk about that more on next week's episode, so tune in for part two of Gnosticism, how we might reinterpret the Gnostic mythos in a way that creates a relevant Gnostic psychology and philosophy to use in the 21st century. Thank you for listening to Reenchantment. If you have thoughts or feedback on this episode, send me a message at daniel at reenchantmentpod.com. And if you are a listener of Reenchantment and want to make the show better, I could use your help. I'm doing a listener survey right now where I ask listeners what's going well about the show and what could be improved. So if you have five minutes, please go to reenchantmentpod.com and a window will pop up 
uh, right away asking you if you'd like to take the survey. As I said, it only takes about five minutes, and I'd really appreciate hearing your feedback and ideas on how to improve the show. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week on Reenchantment. Enchantment.